0: Hi, I'm Samantha Yap, and I help blockchain and cryptocurrency companies tell their stories. I'm really passionate about demystifying emerging technologies and making it easy to understand for everyone. I'm embarking on this journey to discover the history of money in order to better understand where money is heading today. In this series, we'll explore why Bitcoin, digital currencies, and decentralized finance may play an important role in our future. Come join me on the story of money by Abcast. Perhaps the key to thinking about money is that it's an extraordinarily powerful idea, an ideal even, that everything is exchangeable. In the words of Jorge Borges, a key figure in Spanish language and international literature, money symbolizes man's free will because it can be transformed into anything even if that means throwing it all away to find happiness. But as the famous saying goes, money can't buy happiness, but it can make you awfully comfortable while you're being miserable, says Claire Booth Luce, an American author and politician. The Philosophy of Money is a book on economic sociology by German sociologist and philosopher Georg Zimmel written in 1907. He was fascinated by the notion that money is a perfect means of exchange able to convert qualitative differences between things into quantitative differences that enable them to be exchanged. If money didn't exist, we'd have to invent it. But he also believed that our social relations are increasingly mediated by money and they become more abstract and featureless as a result while our inner lives are rendered more devoid of meaning and value. Does money enrich our lives as well as our bank accounts or are the two mutually exclusive? Maybe the answer lies in what meaning we ascribe to money, whether we value it highly or see it as a means to an end. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 6 verse 24, you cannot serve both God and money. Money, as Nigel Dodd writes in The Social Life of Money, can be anything or everything and derives its power from that fact. When the Euro was first introduced, there was hope both among policymakers and critics that somehow this unified currency might also play a social role, which was to unify member states by building social cohesion among its citizens. That's not how it panned out, of course, and in fact the European Central Bank is far removed from both EU society and governments, basing its decision-making entirely on technical questions like price stability. Its one-size-fits-all is in keeping with what Dodd calls sanitized view of money as a cultural neutral landscape. So is money an abstract thing, or something functional we prefer not to talk about, like our salary or how much rent we pay? And how does that square with the sense that, in societies, money defines us? How much we have, what we spend on or don't spend on, or what we do with it? To help me unravel what money as a social construct actually means, I've welcomed back Professor Cathy Mulligan, co-director of the Imperial College Center for Cryptocurrency Research and director of Decentralab from the University of Lisbon. Welcome back to Yavcast, Kathy. Thanks for having me, Samantha. So when the euro was first introduced, it was seen among policymakers as a way to kind of unify you know, the countries and play a social role. Could you give us an idea of money as a social construct?
1: Yeah. So money for me really is nothing more really than a social construct. But I like your analogy to the euro because the idea behind the euro was to create this kind of common European feeling. You would feel European in whatever country you went into trying to create a social identity for Europe, which I think is probably an important thing for Europe to try and do. However, what we've seen as well is because of the way the euro got set up, We've also seen that it nearly has torn Europe apart when we saw, you know, Grexit. Before we had Brexit, we almost had Grexit because of the financial situation of Greece. And we saw very passionate discussions from the finance minister of Greece at the time, basically saying we need to exit the European Union so we can actually retain control over our own economy and run it the way we want. So that's why, you know, in particular for CDBCs, we need to really deeply think through how we're setting them up because... It started with a great vision, the euro, but it's also almost torn the European Union apart because of not necessarily hugely well thought through design, if you will. And the monetary policy of the euro is very, very complicated. How well is the system of where money comes from work today? That really depends on who you ask. <laughs> sorry, to, sorry to give you such a blithe answer, but that phrase, it takes money to make money. That is not an incorrect one, really. So in order to get a $100, £100 loan, you actually have to have enough wealth the bank to say that, yes, I will loan you that money in the first place. So the circulation of money really works extremely well for those who already have wealth. So I would say if you went to ask some really rich people or people in the middle class and above, does the money system work today? Yes, they would say it probably functions quite well or relatively well. The issue, however, is it doesn't really function particularly well for those who don't have pre-existing wealth or those who can't put up lots of collateral to get those loans to create money. So for example, you might have small businesses that are unable to access credit markets because they don't have enough collateral to put up to secure that loan. Whereas other companies who shall remain nameless have so much money, they can just get more and more money in order to continue the domination of the global economy. For me, the current financial system is extremely exclusionary. And it's really in the same way we have a social contract about what money is, We also seem to have a social contract about who can actually have it. There are lots of people and lots has been written about this, about the level of financial exclusion, you know, currently experienced in today's world. So I would say it's not particularly just. I would say, you know, yes, it's functioning, but it's not just shall we say. And that's a large part of the research that myself and the guys at the lab are doing together with me is looking at what is the social good that we can create out of these technologies. Is there a way to be more inclusive financially or be more inclusive for smaller companies in order to help them access these kind of credit markets?
0: Yeah, you make a good point. Like even with getting on the property ladder, as people say, people need that 10% or 5% deposit, but not everyone has that cash lying around. So they're not able to borrow and therefore not able to kind of own a home. And I'm sure there's more that people are shut out from.
1: Exactly. And that compounds, right? So the more you pay rents, the harder it is to save that deposit. But meanwhile, the people who are able to afford to buy the property to rent to you are able to make more and more money and then go out and buy more property to rent, right? It's not a dissimilar situation with money.
0: So going into the meaning of money, money seems to take a variety of meanings for people. What does money mean to you? Uh oh,
1: well, that's a very philosophical question. For, for me, for me, honestly, money means freedom. And that's why I think the social justice around access to money and finance is so important for me. Money is freedom in the sense that, you know, if I don't like a job I'm working at, I've got enough money to walk out of the door and be able to, for example, still have my home. So for me personally, money is freedom. The whole point is that it has a very different meaning for most other people, right? Or Well, actually, other people will say money is freedom as well, but I think everyone has a different interpretation of what it means. But for yeah. me, it's freedom to have the agency to do what I think is important and useful for the world.
0: That's interesting because for me, I see it as a very practical thing. Like it provides security. We were talking about financial security. You just need to have enough to pay for your rent, to pay for food to live, to get by. So it enables me to do things. I never actually really saw it as a social thing, but am I missing something here?
1: I think money is massively social. If you think about just some of the ways that money is implicitly used in your day-to-day life, right? So the way that people display logos or talk about what restaurant they went to, inherently what they're saying is sometimes, you know, some people are saying, this is what I can afford. I think it's a very subtle thing and I think you're right. It's such a practical everyday thing that potentially we don't think about it from a social construct perspective, but it definitely is, right? And if you think about some of the ways parts of our world and our society are set up, the amount of money you have is the calling card to allow you in to certain places.
0: Yeah, that actually brings me to my next question. How much does money play a role in impacting our social lives today?
1: I think it probably is one of the defining factors in many countries, actually. I mean, we might like to think that it's not something that sort of drives our life so much, but I would say try living without money. I will leave you with a challenge, Samantha. Try not to spend any money for five days. (laughs)
0: <laughs> that's a really tough challenge but no that is a really interesting point because money is like you say freedom people say money is power and yeah money does matter I guess and you talk about social good and even for me I mean I never really worked in the charity space I used to be a journalist I used to be a very naive journalist I would say and I would kind of want to write about like social causes and stuff but really charities need money to do the work so yeah money is power I actually would like a world
1: where we don't need charities. Now we're getting on to a really exciting topic. Yes. So I th- I think that the need for charities and the need for philanthropy in the world today is an exact and very clear example of how badly our financial system actually functions. Okay. And I'd love to understand how we could make financial systems work such that we didn't need charity And because everybody was able to have enough financial resources to do the things they wanted to do, but also take those loans that we're talking about, access money, engage in the financial system in a way that is really empowering, rather than having to wait for a charity. You know, can we create agency for people? I'd love to see a world where we don't need charity.
0: Wow, that is a very powerful point. A world where we don't need charities. How does cryptocurrency change the game with this? So this is where I think it gets interesting
1: when we talk about things like private money, right? So we could think about a world where, let's say, you and I are small companies, right? Let's say I'm really good at baking and you grow some of the best tomatoes in the area and they're always super fresh and super tasty. We would be unable to go and access finance to maybe create a joint venture between us that allows us to go and sell these fantastic sandwiches to the world because of the way that the current financial system is set up. But what about if we could create our own, like, Kathy and Samantha coin and say to the world, hey, guys, you know, you've seen how good these tomatoes are, you've seen how good her bread is, why don't you invest in us and we will give you a promissory note, basically a cryptocurrency coin, and you will earn money off that when we are successful. So there could be lots of different ways to cut this. But I think what cryptocurrencies for me do, and in particular, you know, I think we're at the start of cryptocurrencies. Bitcoin is really a thought experiment to me. I know a lot of people have massive investments in it, but I think it's the start of a thought process that is going to take us for the next 20 to 30 years. But if you think about what you're actually saying, you're actually saying that you can give access to small companies and individuals who might be financially excluded You can give them new ways to engage in the financial system that are truly empowering rather than, you know, I don't know if you've ever been to a bank and tried to get a loan and, you know, they've turned you down. (laughs) I have. (laughs) Take me like two months to get a bank account when I moved here. (laughs) Exactly. So it allows us to completely rethink the way we've set up our economic system a new type of economic system is emerging that is completely based on digital technologies. So I think new types of money are going to emerge that we won't necessarily understand in the same way as we understand what money is today, but we will enable new types of transactions around value using those kind of digital currencies. For me, really, let's put it this way, the price in US dollars of Bitcoin or the price of Ethereum is probably the least interesting thing And I can't understand why everybody's going on about it all the time. You've basically invented a new monetary system. And all you're trying to do now is compare it to the old monetary system. It sort of doesn't make sense to me. And that's what I really think is fantastic and extraordinarily useful around cryptocurrencies. And I think it's where we're going to start to see a lot of changes. Because it demands us to rethink things that we've taken for granted for generations. You know, we're now asking each other, what is money? Actually, it's what you and I decided is. For so, sure. I, sorry, I'm very excited. I'll yeah. oh, shut up.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, Kathy. I think we touched on some really philosophical and really impactful topics today. So thank you so much for joining me on Yavcast.
1: Absolute pleasure. Thanks so much, Samantha.
0: That was Professor Cathy Mulligan, the director of Decentral Labs from the University of Lisbon. It was really interesting to hear how she sees money and how it means different things to different people. For her, as with many, I suppose it's freedom. Freedom to quit a job, to take a holiday, or to buy a house. But with that comes a glimpse at just how badly broken our system is, in that the amount of money you have is the calling card that allows you into certain places and bars you from others. She also talked about how charity is the thing that has come to fill the gap for those who don't have money, and how she'd love to see changes that would make the system work where we wouldn't need charity. So might cryptocurrency fill that gap? I love the way she described Bitcoin as a thought experiment. I guess those deep believers wouldn't agree with that. But she believes this could still take us another 20 to 30 years, and so perhaps it still is that. But it also shows just how radical the change may be. It's helped to frame a discussion where even the mainstream world, even finance ministers and central banks, are ready to completely rethink the way we've set up our economic system, which makes it some thought experiment. If you'd like to watch my full length conversation with Kathy Mulligan, head to the Yapcast YouTube channel. I'm Samantha Yap, and you've been listening to The Story of Money by Yapcast.